Good morning. My name, in case you're new or if you don't know, my name is Nathan Phipps, and I'm the youth director here at Flint Hills Bible Church. My wife and I started attending this church back in 2015, and we started helping out with the youth ministry, and then by God's grace, we were able to, I was able to come on staff here back in May, and so it's been a privilege to be able to be full-time with the youth ministry, and it's my privilege to bring you the word this morning. So would you, would you pray with me before we open up God's word? Father, we just come before you this morning, and we just ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through your word. Would you use me as a tool and uh, make my words clear and understandable, and uh, would your message be clear and not come back void? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, it was 1980 when a young Christian artist named Keith Green came out with a album and a song with the same title, and it was called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. And some of you may remember that song. Uh, Keith Green was before my time, but I, I grew up listening to Keith Green, and I didn't realize it at the time, but what really made him unique and kind of different in Christian music at that time was that he wrote songs that were convicting, and he talked about issues and attitudes of the heart that wasn't really being talked about in Christian music at that time. And one of the songs that, that, he, that he sung was called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt, and he, he sings about Israel and their time all the way through the Sinai Peninsula and the complaining and the belly aching that they did. And I always wondered, why, why would you sing a song about a group of people that lived so long ago when I was a kid? And <laughs> like, that's kind of weird. But then I realized he wrote that song because their issues are our issues today. Their complaining is something that we all fall to today. And complaining, if you think about it, we all love to complain. It's, it's like an American pastime. It's right up there with baseball, apple pie, ranch dressing, complaining. <laughs> we love it. And we make friends when we complain. If you're in a room that you don't know anybody, you usually start a conversation by complaining. You know, it's like, so how about those chiefs, do they just have a horrible defense or what? Yeah, I know. Or, oh my goodness, how much rain are we going to keep getting? I've got beans in the field and I need to get them cut. And what's the deal? I know it's the worst. And now you've got a friend. You've got your little complaining buddy, right? That's what we all do. We love it. And usually when we complain, it usually comes down to circumstances, other people, or God. Circumstances, other people, or God. You'd say things like, my parents are too strict. I'm too, I'm too busy to read my Bible. You can tell I, I work with the youth group. It's dry. It's too wet. Why is the youth guy preaching? I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever had a complaint directed at you? We're getting ready for Thanksgiving and all the fun, awkward family stuff that that brings. Have you ever, and it, I don't know if you've ever had it happen to you, but it can be, it can be painful uh, to have like, oh, so what are we going to do tomorrow? Or I'm bored. Did you make anything besides pumpkin pie for dessert? Or dear, do you have any barbecue sauce for the turkey? It's just, uh, it's a little bit dry. And what complaining does is it puts a burden on that other person, and it makes them accountable to the complainer. It lets them know that they're failing and that they need to resolve it right now. 
And really, when what complaining does is it drives a wedge between the complainer and the person or the authority that they're complaining about. And so when we complain and our complaints are directed towards God, it's, it's driving a wedge between ourselves and the blessing and the contentment and the maturity that God would have us by enduring whatever we're tempted to complain about. And so we see that illustrated here in Numbers chapter 11, and that's where we're going to be, where we're going to spend our time. The bulk of our time is in Numbers chapter 11, and we're going to see four risks that you take, that I take, when we, are, when we give in to sinful complaining. Four risks that we take when we are tempted to give in to sinful complaining. So while you're turning to Numbers chapter 11, I'll bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the nation of Israel up to this point. Now, if the the high school kids were here, they would tell you that if I had a whiteboard, I would draw you a map and a chart, and my maps are very, very accurate and precise. So unfortunately, you don't get to see my talent, but maybe someday I'll get a whiteboard up here. And Israel, what they had done, they had been in slavery for 400 years, not occupied, not in captivity. They had been in chattel slavery for a little over 400 years. And God miraculously redeems his people out of Egypt, sends Moses to lead them out. Pharaoh wasn't too wild about it, but God's pretty persuasive. Ten plagues finally brought him around to God's side of things. He took, leads them out of Egypt. Pharaoh comes to realizes, oh snap, if I don't have slaves, how am I going to get my morning paper? So he jumps in his chariot, runs back, tries to get the slaves back. Israel sees Egypt bearing down on them with the Red Sea at their backs. They cry out to God. They what did you do, Moses? Did you bring us here to die? And God, even though they were faithless, God provides a way out for them, drives a wind, parts the Red Sea, they cross through, and then the Lord takes out the Egyptian army. A few days later, they're running out of food. And what does Israel do? They bellyache and they complain, we don't have food. Did you bring us here to die? So God provides manna for them, and we'll talk about that later. A few days later, they're running out of water. God provides water for them, and this happens over and over and over again. They get attacked by this, this nomadic tribe, the Amalekites. God spares them from the Amalekites. And finally, a couple months into their journey, they get to Mount Sinai. And from there, you know, you know the story. A lot of things happen at Mount Sinai. They get the law, they get the Ten Commandments, the covenant is made, and they'll spend about nine months at Mount Sinai. The book of Leviticus is written, the tabernacle is built, and they'll be there for about nine months, and they're waiting for that pillar of cloud to start moving to let them know that it's time to finish their journey. And finally, about a year after they leave, they leave Egypt, that pillar starts to move, and then they, they know it's time to pack up the tabernacle and move. It is time to finish our journey and claim the inheritance that God has for us. And so they are three days into the second half of their journey, three days. And that's where we pick up in Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And so what we see here is that Israel put themselves in opposition to God. And so when we, are, when we give in to sinful complaining, we take the risk 
of placing ourselves in opposition to the authority of God. That's what happens here. It seems a little strict that God reacts so swiftly, but remember, they had been complaining all the way up until this point. Look back at verse 1. They said they're complaining about their misfortunes. Food, water, the heat. They had been enslaved for 400 years, and they're three days into their journey, and they're already complaining about their comfort and their conditions. Some of their favorite complaints, if you look back in Exodus 16 and 17, they would say all the time, did you bring us here to die? Is that why you brought us out here? Kind of that manipulative grumbling. Is God among us? And so you see that God's judgment is swift. This is what God thinks of complaining. As soon as the Lord heard it, and that's a descriptive term, probably meaning that they were grumbling and belly aching out loud, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them. That, that phrase kindled, it actually describes your face, the look of your face when you're about to lose it. It, it, means, it actually says the Lord's nose was blazing red. And I don't know, I mean, I had a sibling that I could really poke and get her really mad. And that's what she would look like. Her face would turn beet red. And that is God's reaction to complaining. He acts swift and justly. And in a weird turn of irony, he sends fire into the camp. And what they had been led by a pillar of fire, it had been a source of comfort. It let them know that God's presence was there. And now there is fire consuming some of them in the camp. So you place yourself in opposition to God's authority when you doubt his goodness and you doubt his sovereignty and you complain about your circumstance. But even in God's wrath, you see in verses, the last half of verse 1 and 2 and 3, that God still has mercy about the, in the, with the people. He says that, that the, the anger of the Lord was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. The Lord could have sent the fire right into the middle and consumed them out like a nuclear bomb, but he doesn't. He sends the fire to the outer edges of the camp. Even in God's wrath, he's displaying his mercy. The people call out to Moses, and Moses, as their mediator, calls out to God, and the Lord relents. And the people had a real understanding of what the, the author in Hebrews is writing in Hebrews 10.31, that it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So, complaining, Luke 6.45 says, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So, complaining is not just the words we say, it's the heart behind it. And so, when we talk about complaining, we need to realize that there is a sin under the sin that's going on here besides complaining. When you complain, it's usually because you're already in a difficult circumstance. It's usually because you're already going through a trial of some sort. And so you start to doubt God's goodness, you doubt God's sovereignty, and you feel cheated that you are going through this and the way you're going through it. You feel wronged and cheated, and so you feel justified in your rebellion and in your complaining. And we voice our opinion, God, that's not fair. You should have done this. You should have stopped that. You should have healed this. So complaining happens then when we doubt God's sovereign purpose in our life, and we place ourselves in a position of God. 
and we place ourselves on the throne. So complaining is rebellion against God, and it is a serious thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. So that's the first risk. A second risk we take when we give in to sinful complaining is that we become infectious to others, especially to the people of God. Look at verse 4 through 6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, oh, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And I think you have to say it that way, this manna. They were just discontent. And so if you notice, then in verse 4, that the, it says the rabble was among them and had a strong craving. Who is, who is the rabble here? And this, this word is only used this one place in the whole Old Testament. And probably what it's referring to is a group of people that left with Israel. If you were to go back and look at Exodus 12, you would realize that it's, Israel was not the only people group that left out of Egypt, that actually there was a group of Egyptians and other people, they're called the mixed multitude in Exodus 12 that left with them. And so this small the small contention here is probably what's being referred to. And they're grumbling and they're belly aching. And you see that it happens that they say uh, they had a craving. And then in verse 4, and, and the rabble of Israel wept. No, it says, and the people of Israel wept again. So we're going from a small group then to the whole group of people. If you're to look at verse 10, Moses describes it more. It says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. So it starts small, and it spreads like an infection to the whole group of people. And if you've been a parent or a grandparent, and you've gone on a road trip with children, you understand this principle very well, that it starts with one kid, one discontent child, and then it slowly travels to the whole group. Usually in our van, it's the baby gets tired of being in the seat, so she starts crying. And then when she gets to a certain pitch, the two-year-old starts crying, and then it's just echoing choruses of crying. And then the kids in the back start making their complaints. Can we stop? Are we there yet? I'm hungry. Why won't you stop? Because you don't stop until you get there. That's why. Amen? <laughs> That's right. That's why. That's why. So I think we all understand that when we're around discontent, disgruntled people, it has an effect on us. Podcasts we listen to, shows we watch can have an effect on us. And that effect, they don't just, they're not just affecting the complaining, they also have a false view. They're infecting with wrong thinking. Look at verse 5 and 6. It said, remember the fish we ate in Egypt, that cost nothing nothing. You were slaves. What do you mean? It cost you everything. It cost the sweat of your brow, your life, your fortune, your kids' futures. What do you mean it cost nothing? They had just started remembering the good things, if you can have good things about being a slave in Egypt. And they had a selective view of history, and they were infecting others with that selective view of history. Complainers reorder history so that they can feel justified in their vocal rebellion against God. And if I stopped and thought about this, and I realized I do this a lot when I think about the good old days when I was a kid. 
And I think we're tempted to think about that. When I get anxious and nervous about the world that my kids are going to grow up in, I'm tempted to complain like, oh, I wish they had the life that I, that I had, you know, in the early nine, or the 90s, in the early 2000s. Life was so great. There was dial-up internet. And, you know, we weren't glued to our phones and Furbies and Backstreet Boys and anthrax attacks, the Oklahoma bombing, 9-11, we don't think about those things when we think about the good old days. So we see that Israel, their complaining spread, their distrust, their unthankfulness, their ungratefulness to the Lord is spreading throughout the whole camp. And so not only does your complaining make you infectious, it takes you off your focus of God. And it takes you away from the comfort that you could be receiving by enduring whatever that hardship that the Lord has for you. And it gets you off of viewing God's providence. And that's the third risk you take when you are tempted to complain is that you are tempted to blind yourself to God's providence. When we complain, we blind ourselves to God's providence. Look at 7 and 9. And so it's like Moses realizes what's happening here and he just stops the flow of the narration to just remind us what they're complaining about. Verses 7 through 9. Now the manna was like a coriander seed, and its appearance like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it into handmills, or beat it into mortars, and boiled it in pots, made cakes of it, and the taste was that of the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. The people were so focused on their hardships, they completely forgot just the miracle that God had provided for them every day. It started just a couple days into their journey. So what manna was, we don't really know. It was a miracle food. We don't know. Manna literally means, what is it? Because they didn't have a name for it. They woke up, they said, what is it? I don't know. Let's try it. And they ate it. So they passed the what is it? Here's some more what is it, you know. That's what they were saying. I don't know if it was like a whatchamacallit or what, but that's what they called it. What is it? It was small like a coriander seed. It was like cilantro. So if any of you do herbs, you know what the size of a cilantro seed is. A little bit smaller than a kernel of corn. It appeared like delium, which is a, a kind of clear, milky-ish resin from plants. And it fell in the dew in the morning. And if you looked at if you looked at Exodus, they would have to gather in the morning because it would, it would melt in the heat of the day otherwise. And they were only allowed to gather what they could eat that day because they had to constantly be dependent upon God for their daily bread. And so this was a small, kind of squishy little piece of bread bead. That's what it was. And and scholars have gone back and forth to try and figure out what it, what it is. Some people say it's, you know, the resin of, maybe it was the, the sap of some plants that were growing in the wilderness, or there's a certain kind of bug that leaves secretions a certain time of the year, and it's edible, so maybe that was it. But none of that really describes what is being described here in Numbers. So if we're already accepting that God can part the Red Sea, I think it's okay to accept that God can make food appear for his people every day. And that just drives home the point that these people had a miracle day after day after day, and they still forgot God's goodness. They still chose to distrust. They still chose to complain. Now, 
it's true that Israel had legitimate hardship. They did. I don't think any of us would want to be those people, to have the burden and the weight and the baggage of being a slave your entire life, to leave and go to a place that you don't really know where it is, you're just trusting, and then to be in Sinai, which is no picnic. Sinai was not so much sand as it is rock. It is just hard, jagged, sharp rock. There is no soft place to lay down. No soft place. There are high winds blowing dirt and rocks, super hot in the day, super cold at night. Not that fun. And I don't know about you, but I would have probably gotten tired of waking up every morning and picking little bread beads. I, I don't know how they did that. I guess the kids went and got it. <laughs> I really wonder how that happened. But see, all too often, we forget the way God is working through our hardship. And we miss out on the blessing of God. We miss out on that the Lord is, draws near to us in times of trial. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. God wants to draw near to you in your trial. He wants to draw you close. He wants to remind you of his goodness. And one of the privileges of being in Christ is that we know that whatever we walk through in life, we are actually not walking through it alone. And we know that God does not waste our pain. But listen now, God does not draw near and he does not give extra grace to a bitter, demanding heart. There was so much blessing, there was so much providence, and yet they somehow found a way to forget it. So you might be asking yourself, so they were complaining, is, is all complaining sinful? Because it seems like there's a lot of it in the Bible. And the short answer is no, not all complaining is sinful. And usually we call it lament, complaining versus lament. About half the Psalms are dedicated to lament. And the difference between sinful complaining and non-sinful complaining is basically the difference in pride and humility. Brad Bigney gives a definition of lament. He says, lament is a prayer in faith to God about the calamities that he has brought in our lives. So in other words, lament is taking our complaints to God, trusting him in the midst of our trial, and looking for hope and encouragement and endurance no matter what the outcome is. Complaining is just demanding something better on my timetable, not on God's. And we see that illustrated in verses 10 through 15. We're not going to read all of it, but if you're to read that, you'll see that Moses is overwhelmed by the people. He's overwhelmed by the burden of just this constant complaining. And he doesn't know how to provide food for the people, and he takes his concerns to God. He takes his complaints to the Lord, even though it's flawed, a flawed complaint. He takes it to the Lord. And he says in verse 14, I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Moses was overwhelmed, and he actually asked the Lord, God, just kill me. I can't handle this. And it's interesting, the Lord does not answer his prayer the way Moses asked. But Moses took his concerns to the Lord, and God provides a solution. If you're to read all the way to verse 30, you'll see how he provides that solution. And what he does is he sets up a system of 70 men to help Moses lead the people. 
He says in verse 17, this is the Lord, and I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So the contrast is staggering here. You have Moses, who is asking for something and taking his concern to the Lord. God says, no, but I'm going to help you. And then you've got the people of Israel that are so determined. They want what they want, and they don't care if they don't have the Lord to get it. Just give me the meat. I want the meat. And so what you see then, that Israel has turned this lust into an idol. And an idol is anything that we're willing to sin to get or sin if we don't get. An idol is anything we're willing to sin in order to get, or if I don't have it, then I'm going to, then I'm going to sin. So Israel didn't have meat, so I'm going to complain. I'm going to grumble. And they're demanding of the Lord to give them meat. And what we see in contrast to Moses is that the Lord, even though he didn't give Moses what he wanted, but he offered him help. If you complain and you rebel against God long enough, the God may actually give you what you're asking for. And that is the fourth risk that you take when you give in to sinful complaining, is that you may get what you're asking for. Look at Numbers, verse 18 and 20. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. That's what they were saying. I want to go back to the pagans. God says, therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat it. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? The world was all too precious to them. The things of this world was more worth more to them than following their redeemer to their inheritance to their promised land. I want what I want now, and I don't care if that means I don't have God. That's what they wanted. And so the Lord, the Lord gives it to them. The people were content to have their idol. And so the Lord gives them over to their lusts. Romans 1, and 25 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So you see, these people in Romans, they we're willing to exchange a lie if it means I get what I want. And that's what the people of Israel did. That's what we do when we nurture and water that root of bitterness and let it go because we can't let go of what we want. So verse, God gives them what they want in verse, in verse 30 through 33, or 31, excuse me, says, then the wind of the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side. Around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered 
ten homers, and they spread them about themselves all around the camp. There, verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled. There's that phrase again. The Lord's face was beat red against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava because they buried the people who had the craving. You see that God gave them over to their lusts. Warren Wiersbe says, God sometimes answers our prayers, and we find that the answer is not a blessing at all. Notice, notice how willing they were to work for their idol. It says, that, it says that they worked in verse 32. They worked all day, all night. They were grumbling about waking up early and getting free food, but they're willing to work all day and all night and the Lord just overwhelms them with birds. It says it was about a day's journey on either side of the camp. That's about 12 to 15 miles. I did the math, so I, I think I'm, I don't know, but I think I'm right. That's about 400 square miles, which is about half of Lyon County of quail, of birds. That's a lot of birds. That's a lot of birds. And they just loved it and stuffed their faces, but while it was still in their mouth, the Lord's anger was kindled. And once again, they were struck with the great plague. When we complain, we, we drive people away. And when we complain against God, we drive our Creator away, and we drive the blessing and the contentment, as hard as it may be, the contentment that He has and the joy that He has for us in that trial. I wish I could say Israel learned their lesson. <laughs> but they don't. They continue to complain all the way to the promised land. In chapter 14, they're there. They sent spies in. You probably know the story. Twelve spies went in. Ten were bad. Two were good. Joshua and Caleb. They bring back the plenty of the land. They tell about the giants. And they are, they are on the banks of the Jordan River, and they can see the promised land. It's right there. But they say, no, I don't think God can do it. I don't think God can help us through that. Why did you bring us here, Moses? Why did we leave Egypt? And God says in Numbers 14, 26 through 30, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel with which they grumbled against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. You asked to die in the wilderness, that's what you're going to get. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. I mean, they were so close. They were right there. They could see it. They had had all the providence, all the miracles. And yet, they said, nope, it's too hard. Don't think God can do it. Some of you are so close, and you're tempted to give up because you think it's too hard, and it is hard. But you'll miss out. You'll miss out on what the Lord has for you. 
if you nurture and feed a spirit of complaining, the consequences could be devastating. So, why is, why is all this important for us? Well, it actually, it actually is. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he, who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Israel's struggles is our struggles. When we, when we complain, we risk putting ourselves against God, being infection to other, others, blinding ourselves to God's providence, and, and eventually getting what we're asking for. So how do we fight against this? How do we, okay, how do we stop this? Well, a pastor named Brad Bigney, he's, one of, he's a biblical counselor, one of my favorite biblical counselors. He gives us, he gives three helpful principles for fighting complaining. And I, I stole them. I don't have anything better than what, what he had. So three helpful principles for fighting complaining. First one, to fight complaining, submit to authority starting with God. Submit to authority, starting with God. Luke 6.45, again, out of the abundance, the heart of the mouth speaks. Our mouth says what's really going on in our hearts. And we hate to submit to somebody when we think they're being unfair, or that terrible boss, or that unethical government, or God if we think he's being unjust. And if you, if you look at the Psalms, all those Psalms of Lament, what they all work around towards is that the, guy, the, the psalmist will bring his complaint, turn to the Lord, ask God for help, and then he chooses to trust. He submits to God's authority. He submits to God's authority. David cries out to God in Psalm 61, 8, and he gives his complaint, and by the very end he says, So will I ever sing the praises of your name as I perform my vows day after day. I know it's hard, but I will choose to trust and obey you. Secondly, first you submit to God's authority. Secondly, feed your faith by spending time with the right kind of people. Feed your faith by spending time with the right kind of people. And I, I think that's really helpful because it's true, right? Complainers love an audience. And so maybe you need to adjust the people you hang out with, or maybe you need to be able to give the faithful wounds of a friend and tell them what they're doing. Podcasts, TV shows, certain ones can have this effect on us when we just have that constant voice in our head and we start adopting the way they think. We need, we need to be around people who will hold us accountable. That's why we encourage you guys to be involved in Bible studies and Sunday school and Xenos if you're a college student and the Doxa Youth Ministry if you're a junior high and high school because we want you to be building these relationships with people where you can be the ironing sharpening iron and you guys can put yourselves around the right kind of people and you can be caring for each other and helping each other through the trials. Proverbs 27:6 says faithful are the wounds of a friend but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We want to be around faithful friends who are willing to wound our self-pity and our pride and are complaining. Another reason we need to be, uh, we want you guys in these small groups is because when we're in a trial, when we think that there's, when we're, when we're going through something hard, we tend to think that we have it so unique that no one else knows what we're experiencing. 
and therefore we're justified in feeling sorry for ourselves and grumbling and complaining. But then when you go to these small groups and you go to these Sunday school classes and you get involved in people's lives, you realize, I had no idea that she was going through that. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. It lets you know you're not the only one. And just as complaining could be infectious, when you see someone who is going through something legitimately hard and difficult, and yet they are bearing up under that trial, and they are choosing to walk in faith and trust the Lord and be joyful, that is inspiring, and that is also infectious. So surround yourselves with the right kinds of people. Lastly, cultivate an appetite for the afterlife. Cultivate an appetite for the afterlife. So often we're obsessed with the here and now, and our view of eternity is just tiny. And we're more concerned about the things of this world than what the Lord, where the Lord is leading us, where the Lord, where our final destination is. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18 says, so we do not lose heart. And that's the second time Paul says that in that verse. And the reason why I think he says that is because we tend to lose heart. So he says it again, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The Lord wants to walk through with you through this trial. And as we go through life and we get the aches and the pains and the hardships, and that step becomes harder and harder, we realize that we are just one step closer to heaven. We sang about it earlier, and patiently I wait his day. His hand can take my grieves away. That's what that's talking about. You see, there's no complaining in heaven. There isn't. All things will be made new. Wrongs will be righted. Relationships will be restored. We will enjoy perfect worship and relationship and fellowship and harmony in the glory of God for all eternity. But where you will see complaining is in hell. Hell is full of complainers. They're complaining about the heat, about the pain, about the unfairness of God for putting them there. And so if you have not ever repented of sinful complaining, of, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, if you are living your life for yourself and not for Christ, then today is the day where that changes. Today is the day of salvation. Give your sinful complaining to the Lord. If you are in Christ and you are just beat down and you are in a rut and you are struggling to trust, remember that the Lord draws near to the brokenhearted. Take your struggle to the Lord. Take your complaint to the Lord like Moses did. If you don't, you put yourself at great risk of long-term consequences. Let's pray. Lord, give us hearts that trust you. And so often, God, we, we go through things, Lord, that are hard, that are, that are legitimately hard. And we, we look inward instead of outward. We focus on ourselves instead of what you are doing through us. 
And so, God, give us hearts that trust you when we're tempted to doubt your goodness and we want to rebel against your authority. Would you, would you soften our hearts and would you be glorified in our weakness as we choose to trust you? In your name I pray. Amen.